Today, we continue our discussion of polycystic ovarian syndrome. In this episode, we're going to specifically talk about the treatment, not just fertility treatment, but also medical treatment of polycystic ovarian syndrome. I'm Dr. Mark Amos, and this is Taco About Fertility Tuesday. Last week, we discussed what PCOS is, what causes PCOS, and some basic truths about PCOS and some things that were false. This week, we're going to talk about treatment. One of the very first treatments that you think of when you're thinking of PCOS is diet and exercise. Now, last week, we talked about diet. There are really two diets that will work for polycystic ovarian syndrome. Caloric restriction diets, which are going to be low calorie like Weight Watchers, or keto diet or Atkin diet, very low carb diets. Now, when I say diet and exercise, I really mean diet. Exercise is something that is good to do, but is actually not good to do when trying to lose weight. I know right now you're thinking, he really is crazy. But when you actually look at exercise in women, because women have lower body mass, they actually don't lose weight as fast as men with exercise. And you all know that because I constantly get yelled at from other women that, oh, men lose weight so much easier than women. And there's some truth to that. Matter of fact, they did a study where they looked at women who were exercising an hour a day, five days a week of moderate intensity exercise. And these women had a BMI of 25, 30, 35, and 40. And when they looked at all these women and they wanted to find out who was losing weight faster, they made sure they were eating the same caloric intake and doing the same amount of exercise that they normally do. But what they found was shocking. No one lost weight. Now, when you first hear this, it seems crazy. No one lost weight, but they're working out five days a week. It even gets crazier. Not only did no one lose weight, but every single group kept gaining weight except for one group, the BMI of 25. That's the only group that didn't lose weight and didn't gain weight, but stayed the same. But what does this mean? What this means is, is that when women exercise, because their body mass is lower, the amount of calories they can lose is pretty minimal. Matter of fact, it's extremely hard to lose weight through exercise. And so when I say diet over exercise, I'm not saying that you shouldn't exercise. What I'm saying is, if you're trying to lose weight and that's your goal, and as we talked about last week, weight is not the problem, but weight can make the PCOS worse. You should focus on the diet because spending 30 minutes to an hour of making a healthier meal is going to help you more than spending 30 minutes or an hour on the treadmill. One of the reasons this is the first line treatment is because it treats everything. So when we talked about all the symptoms associated with PCOS, everything is treated with diet and exercise. Again, focusing on the diet. 
And that's because if you can lower your body mass by even 5%, you will start to see decreased insulin resistance, which will lead to decreased symptoms of polycystic ovarian syndrome. Now, sticking with the insulin resistance theme, we'll look at the second treatment, which is treating insulin resistance. Now, keep in mind, if you don't have signs of insulin resistance, these treatments aren't going to help you as much as it would someone with insulin resistance. Signs of insulin resistance are going to be a high fasting glucose, but not the diabetes level, a high two-hour glucose tolerance test, or having acanthosis nigrans, that darkening of the skin color on the back of the neck. First-line therapy for insulin resistance has really been metformin. Metformin is a great drug when it comes to lowering insulin resistance. And the way it does that is by lowering the glucose in your body through decreasing the absorption of glucose. It also decreases glycogenolysis, which is the breakdown of glucose from the liver into your bloodstream. And third, it increases insulin sensitivity. Now, the good thing about metformin is it's a very safe drug. And the reason it's a very safe drug is it can't bottom out your glucose levels. When you hear about drugs like insulin or glyburide or other type of diabetic drugs, those can lower your insulin, your glucose levels so low that you could even die. But the way metformin works is it's focusing on the glucose, not really on the insulin. So it allows your body to lower glucose, but it can't drop it too much. The analogy I use is imagine a sink filling up with water. That is the glucose coming into your body. The way insulin works is, is that the plunger at the bottom of the sink that stops the fluid from going down, it's insulin. If you give insulin, you pull the plunger, fluid goes out and you can bottom out. But metformin works by decreasing the flow coming into the sink. So you can turn it off completely, but the sink's not going to bottom out because you're never going to pull the plunger. That is why people like using metformin because it's a very safe drug. However, like we talked about it last week, it's also a horrible drug to be on. It causes all the symptoms that people don't want. Flatulence, indigestion, gassiness, bloating. That being said, I won't say it's not a good drug. It's just there now is another drug that I start to use as first-line therapy as long as people don't show severe insulin resistance. If you're showing severe insulin resistance where you're close to diabetes, I highly recommend then going on metformin. And it's very important that you take at least 1,500 milligrams of metformin. Taking 500 milligrams a day is not going to do anything. You need at least 1,500 milligrams a day. You also don't want to start that all at one time or you're going to get very sick. So usually you have to build your tolerance up by starting with a small amount, then going to 1,000, then going to 1,500. So what's this other drug I start with now? I actually start now with myo-inositol. Myo-inositol is similar to glucose, but its metabolite is incorporated into the cell membranes, and that helps with what we call secondary messengers of insulin. What that means is when insulin attaches to a cell, it has to send a signal down to the 
cell to make certain proteins. When there's defects in this pathway, that leads to insulin resistance. So what myelinositol does is it helps prevent these pathways from being disturbed. And by not disturbing them, then your body won't fall into insulin resistance. There may be a time where myelinositol is first-line therapy. I only use it for people with very mild insulin resistance or who have no insulin resistance. It may help them because it's so mild we don't see it. But again, if you have severe insulin resistance or even almost pre-diabetic, it might be worth going on metformin. And you can take them both at the same time, metformin and myelinositol. The third treatment is going to look at hirsutism and acne. Hirsutism is when women get dark hairs in places they wouldn't expect it. This means hair on your upper lip, on the areolas, on the breast. That is normal. However, getting hair on your chin and neck, between your breast or above your belly button, that is not normal. And that usually represents hirsutism. Hirsutism is different than virulism. Virulism is when high testosterones are present and will cause a woman to have a deeper voice. It will cause her clitoris to get larger, which is much worse than hirsutism, which is just getting dark hairs. If you have any of those symptoms, such as enlarged clitoris, deepening voice, a bigger Adam's apple, you need to be seen for possible testosterone tumors that could be growing in your body. We are going to focus on hirsutism. Now, there's a couple ways to treat hirsutism. One is you can start with a medicine called spirolactone. This is a blood pressure medication that when used in higher doses, works against male hormones. Specifically, it blocks conversion of testosterone to DHT, which is a very active form of testosterone. Now, there are other meds such as finasteride, flutamide. I don't use those because those should only be used in situations where someone has failed other treatments. But spirolactone is a very safe drug when under a doctor's supervision. And I would say if you have hirsutism, it's something you might want to get started on. Another medication that we use to help with hirsutism is also the next medication we're going to talk about which is birth control pills. Birth control pills have a lot of benefit for women who have polycystic ovarian syndrome. One thing that they do is they make sure your cycles are normal, but more important, it makes sure your uterus is getting progesterone, which prevents endometrial cancer. If you don't get a period every three months, you are at risk for getting endometrial cancer. It's one of the things I mentioned at the last podcast It's probably the most important thing. You need to have a period at least every three months or you will get endometrial cancer. So being on birth control is a great way to prevent that. But the other benefit of birth control towards the hirsutism is that it increases sex hormone binding globulin. And this protein then reduces the active testosterone in your body And by reducing the active testosterone in your body, it basically reduces the effects of testosterone. So birth control has multiple effects. And it's one reason why it's also a major treatment in polycystic ovarian syndrome. However, if you're wanting to get pregnant, 
there are certain treatments you cannot use. You cannot use spirolactone. You cannot use birth control. However, when trying to get pregnant, you can continue diet and exercise. You can take metformin. You can also take myelinositol. But what we're going to talk about is what are the fertility medications you can take to help you get pregnant. I think the first thing you have to understand is that if you have polycystic ovarian syndrome and you're not getting pregnant, the first question you have to ask is, am I ovulating? Now, what most women do in this situation is they go to the store and they get ovulation predictor kits. Now, I make sure you understand they're not ovulation kits. They're ovulation predictor kits. That's because they don't actually check for ovulation. What they look for is a hormone called LH, luteinizing hormone. And luteinizing hormone can be elevated in women with PCOS. If you remember from the first podcast, we talked about the ratio of FSH to LH changes with a higher LH component, which is what causes the increased testosterone levels. So ovulation predictor kits do not work well with women with PCOS, especially if you have irregular cycles. So the best way to figure out if you're ovulating is to do what's called a day 21 progesterone level. And the reason for that is because the only time progesterone ever rises in your body is after ovulation. What happens is after you ovulate, the sac that is left over luteinizes. And what that does is then it starts to make a hormone called progesterone. And it does that for about two weeks. And if you don't get pregnant, it will collapse and you get your period. If you get pregnant, the baby will then send out a hormone called HCG. And that hormone will then keep the corpus luteum running to keep making progesterone. So if you draw a day 21 progesterone level and it's less than four, then you didn't ovulate. What I recommend then is repeating in a week again. If it's still less than four, repeat another week. And I would do that to three to four tries. If at any time during that, you still get your period, then you know you're really not ovulating. You're just bleeding every month. And it looks like you're getting a hormonal period, but you're not. Now, if you are found to be ovulating, then your PCOS is not really affecting your fertility like someone else's. Sure, there may be inflammation, but you're on the mild side of PCOS since you don't have the irregular cycles and therefore are not going to benefit much from a Clomid or Femara ovulation-inducing drug. However, if you are not ovulating every month or ovulating irregularly, at that point, you would benefit by moving forward with ovulation induction. Now, ovulation induction is just a fancy way of saying making eggs grow. And the two medications that we use are Clomid and Femara. Now, most people will want to start with Clomid, and there's a good reason. It's been around for many, many years, almost 60 years. We've had babies born who have now grown to complete adulthood and older, and we know it's safe. Femara, on the other hand, is a little bit different. That hasn't been around that long. Matter of fact, there aren't even babies who are 30 years old who have used Femara. So for that reason, we don't recommend it as first-line therapy in the past. However, studies have shown 
that Femara should work better than Clomid when women have polycystic ovarian syndrome. Now, in the past, we used to even give metformin by itself. And there are still some doctors who do this. That is wrong. No one should be trying metformin by itself unless you are allergic to both Clomid and Femara. Otherwise, it is clearly obvious in studies that metformin is not as good as using Clomid or Femara. In addition, using Femara is better than using Clomid and why many people are moving towards it. Now, the way Clomid and Femara work are somewhat similar. Both of them use the hypothalamic pituitary ovarian access to make more hormone. The hypothalamic pituitary ovarian access is a bunch of hormone-producing organs that work together. So the hypothalamus sends a hormone called GRH, gonadotropin-releasing hormone, to the pituitary. The pituitary then sends FSH and LH to the ovary, and the ovary then makes follicles and releases estrogen. Now, the thing is, your body doesn't really care if you're making an egg. That's why women with polycystic ovarian syndrome do not ovulate, and yet their body doesn't care because all it cares about is estrogen level. And if the estrogen levels are high enough, the brain says, I don't need to make more hormones because I have plenty of estrogen. So the way Clomid and Femara work is that they trick the brain into making hormones by lowering or pretending to lower estrogen levels. Now, Clomid tricks the brain that the estrogen is low, but it actually isn't low. And what it does is it competes with receptors in the brain for estrogen. And so the brain then doesn't see the estrogen because the clomid takes those spots. And so the brain says, I need to make estrogen. It's too low and releases more hormone. That then, because there's resistance at the level of the ovary because of the PCOS, will sometimes force an egg to grow. It's able to give enough hormone to get it past that resistance. Famara works similar, except Famara actually lowers the estrogen level. Famara is a hormone called aromatase. Aromatase is an enzyme that converts testosterone to estrogen. So when you take Famara, it blocks the conversion of testosterone to estrogen, lowering the estrogen levels, causing the brain to again think its estrogen is low. So the brain says, I need to make more estrogen. And it does that by increasing more hormones. This is going to work for a lot of women with polycystic ovarian syndrome. However, there are some women who have such insulin resistance that even these oral medications will not work. And that's when you have to go to injectable medications. Now, why can't you just go up on the Femara, go up on the Clomid? Wouldn't that make it work? Well, that's a great idea, except the problem is you're making the brain make hormones, but the brain can only release so much hormones. So if your brain has, let's say, 20 units of hormones and you go up on the doses of Femara and the brain says, yeah, but I've already released 20 units. I don't have any more. And you're like, no, but there's more Femara. Make more. It can't. It's out. It's like when I go to get tamales and the tamale man says he's out. I want more tamales, but he's like, I don't have any more. I can only sell you five. So 
Injectable medications allow us to add hormone that the brain's not making. So we can go above the amount the brain sends and potentially get eggs to grow. Now, there are two ways to do this. The first way is just using plain injectables. That means taking Golaf or Falstim, which are injectable gonadotropins, right into the bloodstream and not using any oral med. But the problem with this is that can be very expensive. Those injectable medications are not cheap. So you could use a thousand units of medication just to make one or two eggs. So what a lot of doctors will use is a thing called minimal stimulation cycles, sometimes called minstem cycles. And that's where you use an oral medication with an injectable. The purpose is you can sometimes get the same amount of eggs as the injectables without the same cost. Now, the problem is with Clomid is that when you use Clomid in a minimal stimulation cycle, you're going to limit how aggressive you can be because you cannot take injections while using Clomid or it'll make the Clomid not work. So you have to give Clomid first and then add the injections later. So if your Clomid doesn't make an egg, it's not gonna make anything else grow with injections because nothing was grown. You can't keep something growing that never grew. But with Famara, you can use the injections at the same time because Famara is not competing with estrogen like Clomid is. It's converting testosterone, preventing the conversion of testosterone to estrogen. So you can give injections and the Famara will keep working. That way you can give injections early so people who are struggling to make follicles can keep making follicles. The last two treatments are going to discuss one thing that we don't do often and another thing that we do way too often. Now, the first thing is ovarian drilling. Ovarian drilling works. No one's going to ever tell you it doesn't. That's where we go and we drill into the ovary and remove some of the ovary, which then reduces the insulin resistance and allows women to start ovulating on their own. However, this is no longer recommended. And one of the reasons it's no longer recommended is because it creates scarring. And this scarring alone can prevent you from getting pregnant. Now, do some doctors still do it? They do. But most of them are a little bit old fashioned and probably not reproductive doctors. There is a time for it for people who can't take medications or are not even really trying to get pregnant and just wanna have periods. It's a very reasonable thing to do if you're done having kids. However, I do not recommend doing ovarian drilling if you're trying to get pregnant. The last thing we're gonna talk about is IVF. And this is the thing I think is done way too fast. A woman can't get pregnant with PCOS and the doctor tells them, you should try IVF, you'll make lots of eggs. And they're right, you will make lots of eggs. Matter of fact, you will make more eggs than anybody else. Anytime we see lots of eggs, there's always polycystic ovarian syndrome behind it. But here's the problem. When women with polycystic ovarian syndrome make lots of eggs, they usually make very poor quality eggs. And this isn't because your egg quality is bad. Matter of fact, your egg quality is fine, especially if you're young. The issue is that the inflammation is affecting the eggs. And so when you're going through IVF, I highly recommend at least being on some type of diet that lowers inflammation. I highly recommend being on metformin and, and myonositol and reducing that inflammation. 
However, I think more important is the fact that too many women are pushing the IVF with PCOS too fast. If you can just make one or two eggs at a time, your chances are going to be very good. Now, clearly, if IUIs fail and you were able to make one or two eggs for three cycles, then at that point, IVF makes the most sense. But where the focus in IVF should be is not trying to make lots of eggs, but more trying to make high quality eggs by reducing that inflammatory environment. I have many women who come to me with polycystic ovaries and they can make lots of eggs and have no problem because they don't have polycystic ovarian syndrome. However, if you have polycystic ovarian syndrome and especially have signs of insulin resistance, the focus should be on reducing inflammation because that will give you the best eggs possible. Hopefully this review of the treatments were helpful for some of you and may help you make adjustments that you need to make for your lifestyle or for getting pregnant. The last thing I want to talk about is a case from Amy Schumer, who is a movie star who also has polycystic ovarian syndrome. And I think it's a great example of how IVF, even for a movie star who is probably going to the best place around got 35 eggs with her IVF, 26 of those eggs fertilized, but she only ended up with one embryo. How is that possible? Well, it's not because she's 38. At 38, you're still going to get more embryos. It's back to that point about inflammation. If I had to guess, no one focused on her inflammation. And so when they gave those aggressive medications... They made lots of eggs and everyone feels great. I got so many eggs. What if I didn't get that many eggs? I would have had no embryos. But in reality, she would have got more embryos if there was more focus on inflammation. And this is a problem not just for Amy Schumer. This is a problem for all women with polycystic ovarian syndrome. And so I would say, don't jump into IVF right away. First, try the simple things. Ovulation induction with clomid or fomarin timed in the course. If that doesn't work, make sure you've done the appropriate testing and then maybe go on to intrauterine inseminations. And if that doesn't work and you need to go on IVF, the most important thing is work on the inflammation. No one needs you to lose weight. You just need to reduce that inflammation. Get the carbs out of your diet while going to the IVF. Get on that metformin. Get on that myonositol. Then when you go through IVF, you're going to have more good quality eggs, not because your eggs are better, but because you reduced inflammation and gave a better environment for them to grow in. I wish everybody a happy Taco Tuesday. As always, it helps us when you review us. I greatly appreciate everyone who listens and who tells other people about us. Until next week, this is... Talk about Fertility Tuesday.